Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're taking a listen back to one of our favourite interviews with none other than the gold medal winning world diving champion, Tom Daly. The year is 2020, so we recorded this interview at the height of the pandemic with all the rules and restrictions, meaning we all had to wear masks while we chatted. It's strange now, isn't it, Rachel, looking back at that period because we didn't know then that actually, you know, in the height of lockdown, he was meant to be diving in the 2020 Olympics and it ended up being a year later and that he had actually then won gold. So he was very nervous and worried about his training regime, I think. As an athlete, uh, this virus can be quite... Although, yes, I'm young, I'm healthy and it might not be a big... um, problem for me. Um, I do have people in my family that are high risk and also uh, the more research that's coming out about the long-term effects post-recovery on athletes, like some people have reduced lung capacity, some neurological functions are hindered a little bit, so it's just making sure that we're taking every precaution really. So, is it the longest you've spent out of a pool then since you yes, seven? The longest time out of the water, but we've been training still, so Getting back into the water wasn't as hard as it would be if I hadn't done anything. Like everyone else, obviously the gyms are closed, pools are closed. So at home, luckily I've got a bike and a treadmill to be able to do like in the initial stages of lockdown. I didn't want to go outside whatsoever just to be super safe. So I was inside. I also have a few weights that, that I have as well to be able to do some kind of training. But obviously I can't do any somersaulting because I don't have crash mats and I can't do lots of the diving specific stuff because you need a bigger area than just your living room. And of course, Tom was training hard through all this time, but he also took up yoga and of course knitting. And he used to put out all those pictures on Instagram. He became rather famous for his creations. I started actually knitting because the last week of um, February, the first weekend in March, we were in Canada for a diving competition. And I downloaded a YouTube video 
of how to knit on the way out there. And I thought, while I'm on the plane, I'm going to learn how to knit. Absolutely terrible. I spent the whole six hour flight trying to knit and I had nothing to show for it other than like a wonky, holy piece of fabric by the end of it. But once I got there, I realized there are so many divers that knit. So there was Australian divers, there was a Russian diver, there was a Chinese coach, and they saw me trying to do it and they were like coming over and helping me. So, so why? What's the association? So initially I started trying to do it for something to take my mind off of diving. There's most of the time I'm always so in my head about diving that I get home from the pool and you know Robbie is a great distraction from the pool in itself but you know if it's Robbie or diving to be able to just switch off completely once Robbie's in bed I don't have to think about diving I don't have to worry too much about what's happening the next day with Robbie I can just be really mindful and present and it's almost like a form of meditation it was oh my gosh so many things I've made pats ponchos jumpers scarves socks um, I've just finished a jumper. I'm about to start knitting bow ties. Like I've literally, I've done everything at this point. <laughs> Tom clearly has a natural talent for knitting and for diving. I mean, he must be a total obsessive about whatever he does. You felt that he has to do everything to perfection, which is what you need for a diver. And he started when he was about seven diving. He was the eldest of three boys and he was very close to his dad. He used to take him to the swimming pool. The idea of diving absolutely terrifies me. I've never been any good at it at all. And in fact, what was so fascinating to me about this interview is that diving still terrifies Tom Daly. So every time he climbs up to that top of that board, he feels scared. Quite often, he says there's blood in the water when he hits it because if you get just slightly the wrong angle, you can really hurt yourself. So there is this fear that drives him. Have you ever gone diving, Alice? I used to dive a lot when I was a child and then I swam a lot, actually, until I was about 14 and it's unbelievably rigorous. I think he's just extraordinarily brave because that 10-metre board is terrifying. You can actually go even higher and he did say he once went higher and looked down and thought he couldn't do it. So he, he knows his limits, but it's the sense that you have to get yourself so together each time knowing that at any moment you could split open your head or you could rupture your spleen. There's so many things that can go wrong in diving, and yet he still had the bravery to do it. And he was tiny, and he was so young when he first competed on the national and then the international arena. And I think you look at Emma Raducanu and those very young athletes and sports people, and you don't know how they have the composure to do it at that age. I mean, it is terrifying. I've always been, I've always been terrified, actually, of diving off the boards. I remember when I first went up there when I was eight years old, nine years old, I literally crawled to the edge because I thought I was going to fall over. That I was that I was going to fall off on the sides. And it's just so terrifying. You, you know, you can walk in a straight line on the floor, no problem, without even thinking about it. But as soon as you take yourself 10 metres up, just railings on the side and like a big pool of water, you're thinking, oh, this is where I'm going to fall over if I'm going to fall over. So I think you ask any diver, there's always that adrenaline rush. There's always that. And as soon as that adrenaline rush or that worry or that stress goes away, that is when things can go wrong because you're not sharp, you're not focused and you're not thinking about what you need to do. What was 
fascinating about him as well is he was bullied terribly at school and it's almost as if he wanted to prove the bullies wrong. And he had this incredible courage on the diving board, but also at school. Then his father died and then he came out as gay and then all the way through, he showed tremendous bravery throughout his life. I think that's what's so impressive about him. I don't know how he carried on actually when his dad died because his dad was his coach as well and he had to keep going and he was also very much looking after his two younger brothers and... I think the bullying's really sad because it was when he began to be successful at school that he was bullied. People didn't want him to be better than they were or to be different in any way. And, and he had to change schools in the end. And he talks really movingly about how tough it was for him and how lonely I think he felt. And then also then coming out, he's been incredible on the world stage and has really pushed that. And very few athletes and sports people do come out and do talk about it and he's been really open and then he and his husband Lance have had a surrogate child and he's fantastic about that and very chatty about what it's like being a dad but he's also had quite a lot of abuse about it all. My life had completely changed and I remember coming back to school and it started off with like little like you know names and things like that and I was like yeah whatever like I don't I don't care I don't care and then it like after a while things like that really grind on you mm -hmm. and then it started things throwing and then it was like pushing and it got the kind of like gradually got worse and worse and worse to a point where I was like I don't want to go to school anymore and I was one of those people that bottled it up didn't want to say anything to anyone didn't and you know I think lots of people feel that way they feel like they can't talk to anyone and they feel like it's the most difficult thing in the world when actually, if I could go back, being just being able to reach out to someone, and I know that in schools now there are more avenues that you can go down to speak to certain people within your school, whether it be a teacher, whether it be a friend, a parent, like someone that you can trust that you can go to talk to. Because without talking to someone, it's really hard for it to get better. If people don't know how it's affecting you, it can be really, really tough. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, diver and Olympic medalist Tom Daly tells us his story of how he overcame adversity to take home gold in the Tokyo 2021 Olympics. Living in Plymouth by the sea as a young boy, his parents were keen for him and his brothers to learn how to swim. But little did he know that a trip to the local leisure centre would change the course of his life forever. I mean, my parents were always... Um wanted me to learn how to swim because we lived in Plymouth so it was by the water so if we ever got into any trouble in the water we'd be able to swim so we loved being in the water and one weekend my dad uh, took me to and my brothers to a public swimming session in a pool that I'd never been to before at the time it was called Central Park I think it was and in the swimming lesson there were like the session that we were in there was also people diving in the club and I saw people like throwing themselves off the 10 meter doing somersaults and twists and thinking whoa, that looks cool. And then after that, I was just like, actually, can I try that? So then the next Saturday we went and it was a little taster session. I loved it. And then we went back, went back the next week and the week after, did my first competition, got talent scouted and kind of all went from there. What did you most like about it? I loved being in the water and I loved swimming, but swimming for me got a little bit monotonous because I was going swimming up and down, staring at a black line. Mm -hmm. So then the, and I love like water parks and things like that. So like the adrenaline side of all the slides and things like that. And it was kind of like the perfect hybrid of a sport version of a water park. Because you got to <laughs> jump off of things. You got to learn how to do somersaults and the twists and the turns. And that for me was just something that I, it, I just took to it. 
and like the sense of community and the fact that it's quite a social sport because you're all like queuing up on the diving boards, everybody's having a chat and I got to meet so many great people. And I don't know, I feel like also sport teaches you so much discipline and teaches you so many valuable skills that you can use outside of the pool. Uh, even if it's time management, goal setting, um, being committed, dedicated, all of those kinds of things um, have really helped me from being a diver, have really helped me through school and in everyday life. So can you remember your first dive, your first somersault? What was it like? I mean, I can remember the going into my first diving lesson. And first of all, I had it was like a new pool for me. So I remember walking through the changing rooms, getting completely lost, not knowing where I needed to go. <laughs> and the, every session on the gate, it always said pool closed because it was for like the lessons rather than just open for the public. And I remember standing by the pool close sign and just crying. So I was like, oh, it says it's closed. But then I could see the people in my group diving. And I'm thinking, I can't go in there. It says closed. And I remember standing there for about 10 minutes crying. (laughs) And that was kind of the story of my early diving years. I was terrified of everything. I would stand on the end of the board and cry. I would uh, like be so scared to do absolutely everything. Did you do any belly flops? So many. And I think that's partly why it caused all of the being scared. You know, when you hit your head when you younger? I actually hit my head at a swimming lesson. And it was just at the end, they give you, oh, you've got five minutes to go do what you want. And I hit my, hit my head doing that, which is silly. But I had already been diving at that point. But it was just one of those things that lots of things were happening. And I hit my head and then I was scared to go back. And then I would belly flop and then I'd be scared to do it. And it got to a point where... I was so scared of everything that I just got to a point where I was like, you know what, just going to do it. So you were doing it four times a day, really, because you had two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it started off literally once a week. And then it was like, you've been talent scouted and now you go into the club squad where I got to dive on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then you get moved up again. And then it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then... Obviously, I was at school and then went to the elite group. And then I was able to train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But then also on Monday and Friday, early mornings before school. So how many hours a week were you doing? Oh, gosh. I mean, initially, it started at about 18 hours. And then it went to 20. And then it went to 24. Um, and now it's, it's around. It's, it ranges, really. But between 24 and 28 hours a week, depending on my... It's more probably... This next year is probably going to be more around 24 hours because... I'm getting on. I'm getting on to the older side of the diving uh, team now. In fact, I am the oldest currently. Um, so that fact alone means that I have to train really smart to look after my body. And did you feel you had to sacrifice quite a lot when you were a child then to do all that training? At the time, it never seemed like a sacrifice because I loved it so much. Like it, it, I didn't even have to think twice if someone said, do you want to go to, like one of my friends was like, let's go to the cinema. And I'm like, no, I've got, I'm going training. Because that for me was my cinema. That for me was my going to the park. That was my fun. That was my like creative outlet, but it was also a sporting outlet. There were so many things that it was so exciting for. And to be honest, yes, looking back on it, like I could have been, you know, going to parties and I could have been doing all that kind of stuff. But sacrificing those little things but the amount that I've got to travel the people I've gotten to meet the opportunities that I've had like it's been uh, so it's just been something that I've always been very driven in that sense and did you dream about diving when you were in lockdown or not did you have that sense of falling mm. through the air um you know it's funny you say that I didn't dream about diving at all I mean there are certain things that we do I was doing every single day like visualization mm. so 
I stand on the end of the diving board, I close my eyes and I imagine myself doing each one of my dives so that it's, it's kind of like trains my brain into thinking I'm doing the dives continuously so that when I'm get, getting back into the pool and doing the dives again, my brain is already kind of on the wavelength of being able to do them. So I just shut my eyes and imagine being on the diving board, imagine what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing and what I'm seeing as I'm spinning around so that I'm able to just really hone in on those those skills. That's fascinating. So is it terrifying? You're sta- I'd be utterly terrified standing 10 metres up on this slab of concrete knowing you're going to have to plunge towards the water. How do you feel when you're standing up there? I mean, it is terrifying. I've always been, I've always been terrified, actually, of diving off the boards. I remember when I first went up there when I was eight years old, nine years old, I literally crawled to the edge because I thought I was going to fall <laughs> over. That I was, that's, oh, I was going to fall off on the sides and... It's just so terrifying. You, you know, you can walk in a straight line on the floor, no problem, without even thinking about it. But as soon as you take yourself 10 metres up, just railings on the side and like a big pool of water, you're thinking, oh, this is where I'm going to fall over if I'm going to fall over. And what speed do you hit the water then? 35 miles an hour. So it's, it's quite an impact. And the and height of the 10 metres, two double-decker buses and half a car piled on top of each other. So have you got injuries everywhere or not? Oh, gosh, I've, uh, I've injured so many different parts of my body. Um, I mean, I started off uh, this year with an injured hand. I've, ha- I've torn my tricep like four times. I've had uh, stress fracture responses in my, both of my shins. I've had uh, disc bulges in my back. I've had problems with uh, shoulders, neck you like I mean you know I've hit my head on the board twice <gasps> I mean, you know, yeah I mean you so name it why do you do it I know it's like I ask myself that all the time um I you know when you Is just it like love pushing something yourself or... yeah I just I just love it like there's there's things that go wrong in anything and everything there's always things that will go wrong and there's always things that will be challenging and I'm one of those people that if I set my mind on something I will try to do my absolute best at it like knitting. <laughs> I wanted to set my mind to be able to do something and I'll do it. And the same with, with diving. Like I want to, you know, I've dreamed of being the best in the world and I've won world championships twice, but there's, you know, there's more that I want to achieve, which is why I'm still going and I'm going to keep going until, until my body says, Is that the goal at the Olympics? I mean, you know, that's every athlete's dream. Um, but for me, this, this whole um, pandemic has really given me a sense of perspective of, I can only do my best and there are more, you know, lots of athletes will say that it's the most important thing in the whole world. But I think lots of athletes during this time can actually learn to realise that life is so, it just generally for family and friends is so important. So for me, my greatest achievement will be if I can arrive in Tokyo on that diving board, the best physically prepared, mentally prepared and with no regrets, knowing that I've done everything in my power to give myself the best opportunity to perform well. And then, you know what, just enjoy it because I can put so much pressure on myself and it was similar in 2016 that I tried, like I knew that what I wanted, I knew that I could do it. And I put so much pressure on myself that actually it took the enjoyment out of it. And I go back to like Beijing 2008 when I was 14, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just there because I loved it and I was enjoying it and it was so much fun. Um, and I kind of just want to get that feeling back because with that feeling, you end up diving so much better anyway because you just are able to fly. And you qualified for the Olympics when you were 13. It's yeah. incredible. Did you feel a huge sense of pressure at that age? 
I had no idea what I was what I was doing. It was just like I knew that I was going from you know pool to pool, competing in loads of different places against some amazing some of my idols, and I knew it was actually the year before in 2007. My coach Andy Banks at the time said to me, "Do you want to go to the Olympic Games next year?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, of course I do." He's like, "I'd written a plan that." can get you to the Olympic Games. If you learn these dives at this time and you have this experience in these competitions, I think I can get you to the Olympic Games. And I was like, okay, like, sure, why not? Because you had people asking for your autograph and things when you were very young, didn't you? That must have been, I mean, in some ways amazing, but in other ways quite difficult for you as a school child and quite difficult with you with your friends. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it's funny because, I mean, I qualified, I think I was year eight when I went to the Olympics. <laughs> so it was... I think it was year eight or year nine. Year nine? Might have been year nine. I don't know. It was it was young. Mm-hmm. And I remember it wasn't when I was, like, in the build-up to the Olympics, no one at school really cared. It was kind of like, oh, cool, yeah, whatever. It was when I got back from the Olympics. and You were a superstar. It, 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 my life had completely changed. And I remember coming back to school and it started off with, like, little, like, you know, names and things like that. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. And then, it, like, after a while, things like that really grind on you. Mm-hmm. And then it started things throwing, and then it was, like, pushing. And it, got, it kind of, like, gradually got worse and worse and worse to a point where I was like, I don't want to go to school anymore. And I was one of those people that bottled it up, didn't want to say anything to anyone. Didn't, and, you know, I think lots of people feel that way. They feel like they can't talk to anyone, and they feel like it's the most difficult thing in the world. When actually, if I could go back, being just being able to reach out to someone, and I know that in schools now there are more um, more avenues that you can go down to speak to certain people within your school, whether it be a teacher, whether it be a friend, a parent, like someone that you can trust that you can go to talk to. Because without talking to someone, it's really hard for it to get better. If people don't know how it's affecting you, it can be really, really tough. Do you think that bullies were just jealous, really? I mean... I, I, I don't know. I think it's, you know, it shouldn't be just a thing and shouldn't be just accepted that that's just what happens at school. But it's, I mean, I don't know. It's, I'd like to think that it wouldn't happen in schools anymore. Like, I feel like people, I would like to think that people would celebrate people's successes rather than try and drag them down. Um, but it was... I just remember it being a really tough time. It affected my diving. My diving started going really badly. I was miserable at home. I was miserable at school. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse until I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I ended up moving schools. And, you know, that move of schools and realizing, you know, how people can be treated Mm -hmm. and how much of a difference that makes you feel at school and how much better you can do because of that. I mean, then that went into 2009 where I ended up winning my first world championship. So from my diving being at its worst to just changing that mindset and then boosting myself back up, it was a, it's really highlights the importance of talking about it and just mental health as well in general, because people who are bullied can really suffer in silence quite a lot of the time and being able to speak about it and be open about mental health can really help elevate what you do and you ended up doing brilliantly didn't you then in your GCSEs and you didn't you get someone to do your photography GCSE with you who was quite well known Uh, yes (laughs) well I had lots of different sections to it you basically you have a coursework piece where you do lots of photos and then you have an exam piece which is six weeks long you get given your task 
and you're then you can either use the photos that you've taken throughout the year or you can go out and take specific photos for this um, this project and I was doing a photo shoot randomly for Italian Vogue with um, Bruce Weber who is an incredible photographer <laughs> anyway um, and Kate Moss was the person that was with me doing the photo shoot um, and at the end of it I was just like do you mind if I take some photos <laughs> for my GCSE photography and I brought my like, little like terrible camera along with me and like was trying to take photos so did she pose brilliantly yeah she posed for them and she was no she was great and even like when I was taking them Bruce Weber came over and was like oh why don't we try this and I was like okay okay." fantastic your sporting success though must have been fantastic in many ways but for your family and your brothers it must have been quite difficult because your parents must have spent a lot of time taking you to competitions and looking after you was that a strain on the whole family I mean, it was something that kind of became normal. My family was so supportive of me, whether it was my grandparents, my mum, my dad. But my dad in particular was like my biggest cheerleader. He was so, you know, it was like, it it was just, you didn't have to say anything. We were just so in line with how we both had this dream of going to an Olympic Games or winning an Olympic medal. And um, he travelled, you know, around the country, around the world to be there with his, you know, big flag that he would wave in the crowd. And, you know, that he was always my biggest cheerleader. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson and me, Rachel Sylvester. But then when you were 12, your dad got very sick, didn't he? He was diagnosed with a brain tumour. How did you find out about that? Did your parents tell you straight away or did they try to protect you? I mean, looking back on it now, I can kind of see, I see it differently of how they went around it. But... I remember going to a competition in 2006 when I was um, started learning my really difficult dives. But then when we got home, my dad said, oh, by the way, oh, all the uh, lads down the pub, we're shaving our heads for charity. And I was like, OK, well, all right, because that was just something that he would do because he was a bit of a joker. So he came home with a shaved head one day and I was like, OK, you know, whatever. And then he didn't come home the next night. And I was like, mum was like, where's... I was like, where's dad? To my mum. 
Anyway, she took us to the hospital. I was, oh, we're just going for a checkup, no worries. Anyway, we go in to like the recovery room and he's there with like these bandages around his head and he's just had a brain tumor the size of a grapefruit removed oh from his head. Oh my goodness. So I didn't know what that at the time, but I looked at him and I was like, I was old enough to know like that's not normal. 12 year old, you're like, okay, you've just been in and had surgery on your head or else why would you have a bandage around your head? What's been going on? He's been having these, what we thought were panic attacks, like 10 panic attacks a day for the last 12 months that so maybe these weren't panic attacks and maybe they were seizures and all of this kind of things that were going through my head. So, and then, you know, he started recovering and he was doing well on radiotherapy and chemotherapy and he started doing really great again. Um, and then he got, uh, a couple of years later, he got another type of cancer, uh, in a different part of his brain. Um, and then had chemotherapy and that went into, you know, was going away. And then there was, I remember it very clearly. I, my team manager in 2011 brought me into her room and said, Tom, I need to speak to you. And was just like, Tom, uh, I would like you to go and pack your bags and get ready to go home. We have a flight booked for you tonight. Your dad's not doing very well. He's taken a turn. You need to go home. Where were you at the time? I was in Mexico. Oh, God. So I was in Mexico. We'd been training there for two weeks, and then I was going to Fort Lauderdale for a competition, and it was two days before you're leaving for the competition. And she was just like, yep, your dad's not doing very well. We need you to go home. So I remember going home at the beginning of May and, you know, just walking in and seeing my dad laying there in the living room on a hospital bed, like not being able to speak. And I was just like, wait, like before I left, he was running around, walking around, you know, just doing like normal. He wasn't able to drive, but he was normal. Um, and I remember going in and seeing that and thinking, what, oh, like, what, what happened? How, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to you? Why is this happening to me? What's, you know, what's going to happen? And what did he say to you? He didn't say anything. He just lifted his arm in the air, like cheering. He would do this thing when he'd see me where he'd like cheer. And so what had happened? So he had got a, so another tumor had come again. And this time it kind of caught everyone off guard. And it was one of those ones where um, by the time they'd found it, it was far too late. And they basically had just said, you've got 48 hours. How did you feel? I mean, obviously, it was horrifying. Like, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know, you know, if I should go to training, if I should stay at home. And, of course, I went to training because that was my way to escape. And I didn't know what to do, what to think, how to feel. Um, Could he communicate at all? At that time, no. Um, But funnily enough... um, after 48 hours, he started to make a recovery. He was able to speak. He was sitting up. He was getting out of bed, walking. And we were like, okay, this is great. And they were like, all the doctors were like, yeah, this never happens like normally that. So then he started talking about, have we got our t- London 2012 tickets yet? And started talking about the next year. And oh, like, have you got tickets for Synchro? Have you got tickets for individual? Like, when are you going to training? When like, you know, it was just having normal conversations. I was also studying for the theory exam for driving test as well. All of these things were happening. Um, so, but it was, of course, he, he lived for another three weeks after the time I got home. Uh, and it was, yeah, I mean, it was horrible. Uh, but 
when you know it's coming, you can kind of prepare yourself a little bit more. Um, but I remember the moment where we were all just around his bed. He was holding my hand and like my family, uh, like my brothers, my mum, his mum and dad, uh, his brother, his sister, we were all there um, because we knew that it was going to be the day. Um, and obviously it was complete heartbreak. It was something that no, I mean, I was 17 years old. I, I My birthday was four, four days before, five days before. Um, so, you know, he never got to take me on a driving lesson. He never got to take me to the pub. He never got to see me win an Olympic medal in London. He never got to see me get married and he would have been a granddad now. Like all of these things that, you know, looking back on it, it's like, it's, it's tough. But at the same time, we both had this dream and we both had such a, and I think that's part of my motivation every day still is that I'm able to have this, like, I don't know, it's almost like a fire to keep, like, keep going. And to, and it's, there's so many things that my dad has taught me that at the time I was like, this is the most embarrassing thing in the world. Why are you doing this to me? You're trying to embarrass me. Like, what are you doing that for? And actually now as a parent and also just as an older person to be able to look back and think, he just didn't care what other people thought of him. He just did what was best for his family. He did what was like, he tried to make everybody smile. He always used to say, do one good turn a day and do something nice for someone else every single day. Just like little things that I look back now and think he was just such a great guy. And do you still feel him talking to you then? Can you? I can still imagine what he would say in every scenario. Absolutely. Um, but it is, it's just weird now to think that like every year that goes by, I'm getting, you know, older. It's, I feel sorry also for my brothers because my brothers were really young, like 12 years old and 15 years old. Like my 12 year old brother, like when I was 12, like I don't know if I would have as many concrete memories, um, as I do, like, for example, I'm, I was 17. So I had, I have, so, I feel lucky that I've got so many memories and so many stories that I can share. But my younger brothers, you know, that memory of him can be, I can imagine could be quite difficult. Um, it's just, but every day is something that, you know, there's, we've got photos of him in our house and it's, we, we talk about him all the time. And I think that's a really help. Initially I didn't, I didn't want to, talk about it I just wanted to carry on I didn't mean to miss any diving sessions like in the middle of his like once his wake had started after his funeral I had to go away for I went out to Leeds to compete at the national championships because I was like no I want to compete my dad will want me to compete I'm not missing anymore why are you distracted though because I'd be terrified that I was going to be too distracted while I was trying to so precise I mean looking back on it now that was just a 17 year old being like no I want to do it I'm gonna do it nothing's going to stop me. But looking back on it now, I think like I should have just taken some time away. Like I didn't allow myself to grieve until after London 2012 because I just, it was like nothing. It was almost like I didn't, there was nothing that was going to stop me from doing the best Mm -hmm. that I could in London 2012. And it was, which is probably why post 2012, it, everything hit me so hard. Like I had this whole thing of I'd been working so hard to that moment that I didn't know what was coming afterwards I was like who am I what am I doing why am I carrying on what like what purpose do I have now and I just fell into this really like post-olympic blues that I and then it was like the time I actually started to grieve for my dad and it was 
it was a really difficult time for me like after that because it's like how do you talk to someone about the fact that you've won an olympic bronze medal which is all that you've ever dreamed of is to win an olympic medal and you're the most sad that you've ever been do you think it's because your dad didn't get to witness it i mean yes Um, did you consider giving up then absolutely yeah in the beginning of 2013 i'd stopped i was like i'm not doing this anymore i cannot carry on putting my like what have i got to push on for what what reason do i have to keep going in that break that i took because now looking back on it it was a break in my head i had retired (laughs) um but i went to la uh to do some uh filming for nickelodeon and when i was there that was when i met lance And that for me was a massive turning point in my life, in my mentality, in everything. It was kind of like, I think this is why Lance and I connected, because when I said that it's hard to talk to anyone about doing something that you've always dreamed of and then being in the darkest place ever a month afterwards, Lance, who's now my husband, um, was able to talk to me and open up to me about the fact that he'd won an Oscar And then the year after was like, what now? Like, I've done it. Like, how do I? And then he lost his um, brother um, to cancer. He lost his mum to cancer. So like these, we connected on levels that most people, some obviously lots of people have gone through loss and through success and all that kind of stuff. But it was like a, we connected on that level so well. And um, yeah. Did you know, the first time you met him, did you think, right, I want to go out with you all? Are you very directional like that? Yes, it was. uh, Within the first week, uh, we had, um, we talked about marriage and we'd named Robbie. (laughs) Yeah. But Um, you'd always wanted to have children, hadn't you? Yeah, I'd always wanted to have children. I'd bought um, kids clothes from when I was about 17 uh, like really? uh, basically as soon as I lost my dad I was like I want to be a parent I want to do what my dad did for me I don't know there was something the relationship that I have with my dad was so special and he taught me so many amazing things that if I was you know if I'm able to be half the dad that you know my dad was to me to Robbie then you know I, I would be eternally happy and who asked who out was it me And then he came over for my birthday in May 2013. And from then, that was when I came out to my friends. I came out to my mum. I came out to um, everyone that was in my inner circle uh, in May. And, well, I didn't come out publicly until December. But it was, yeah, everything kind of... it, It was the first time that I felt like I made sense. Everything kind of you know, just fell into place in a way that I had never imagined that it would. And I felt happy. I felt like I had a new purpose. I felt like Lance being as successful as he was, he kind of gave me a little bit of, you know, like I need to get my ass into gear if I want to, you know, you know, impress him. Did you always know you were gay? Yes. I, I knew that I was always different, but I thought the feelings that I was having, everyone was having. I thought that, you know, growing up, I didn't really distinguish between girls and guys. It was kind of just like, I'm, yeah, cool. I didn't really think about it. I just thought everybody, and I thought everyone thought that. And it wasn't until I got to secondary school and people started saying, you know, oh, that's gay or that's the, and you're like, wait, what? Like, is that, is that a bad thing? Oh, was I not meant to think that? Or am I not meant to be like that? And you start craft this interesting because like, you start crafting yourself of how you want to be seen. And then all of a sudden you start shutting yourself away. And I think that's part of the reason why 
I tried to overachieve in school. I tried to overachieve in my sport and I tried to overachieve in everything that I did to try and hide or like take away from the fact that I knew that I was different. I didn't know in what way I was different. Like obviously I knew that I had these feelings towards uh, guys as well as the girls. And then it was all of a sudden, once I met Lance, that's when it clicked. And I was like, oh, now, like, I never could have thought that I would fall in love with a man. And then I did. And I was like, now everything makes sense. Was it harder as an athlete, really, to come out? Because you came out very publicly, didn't mm. you? And, and that was amazing for a lot of people. In my uh, sport, and particularly children who hadn't had a role model mm. really like that. I mean, in my, I mean, I was completely terrified about coming out publicly. I think, you know, everyone, no matter if you if you're coming out or you feel like you have to come out, it's a terrifying moment. Like whether even if you know that your friends and family are going to be accepting, even like just the first time you say it out loud can be really quite full on. Um, And then the fact to say it out loud in such a public way made me feel yeah, I was I was terrified. Um, but doing it and uh, in terms of an impact on my sport, it didn't have an impact on my like on my sport. I'm in a sport that's very accepting. But, you know, in a sports like football or rugby and things like that is uh, it's a different story at the moment. But, you know, looking back, I would have loved when I was younger growing up, knowing that I, it's OK to be you. And it's not going to mean that you can't follow your dreams and you can't do everything that everyone else can do just because of who you love. And do you wish your father had met him? He must have. Yes. I mean, I feel like they would have got on so well. Um, and even Lance's brother, Lance's brother, who he lost, um, Lance always tells me how similar that he thinks that my dad and him were in terms of the things that they enjoyed and from Lance watching like the documentaries and videos of like and actually kind of getting to know my dad a little bit. And who proposed to who? I, well, that's again, that's another story. So we, it was a long period of time that we were trying to propose to each other, basically. We started, um, I had this idea of get, getting a ring where I could propose to him in his favourite place in the world, which is Dolores Park in San Francisco. And we were going to California that summer and I thought, this is going to be, this is going to be the time. So... We'd just gone for an amazing dinner. I was like, let's go for a walk because we were staying at the bottom of the hill in Dolores Park. We walked to the top and I was like, you know, started, you know, talking about how like, oh, isn't it crazy? Like we met like and I started doing a bit of a spiel. And then he was like, oh, like Dolores Park used to be so beautiful, but it's under construction. Now it just looks ugly. And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, right. OK, so. Not right now. Uh, so I kind of swerved that. And then the next day we went for like a walk to like, I think it's called Land's End in San Francisco. And you can like see the Golden Gate Bridge and all that kind of stuff. And we got to this point And again, I was like about to do it. And then all of a sudden, a, like a group of school kids come by and I was like, oh gosh, okay, maybe not now. So then I like, and then I tried also when we, because we left the next day to go back to LA. And then I tried doing it in LA but again, you know, when it just never felt like it was the right moment. So then we came home to the UK, a couple of weeks went by, then we went for a picnic in St. James's Park. And I was completely oblivious. And we were sat in the park having lunch and Lance started doing his like a spiel. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, that, that kid's got a Nerf gun. I used to have one of those. <laughs> completely interrupted the moment, which I didn't realise was the moment. 
<laughs> so then nothing happened there. And then we went to dinner again. And then we went to Tower Bridge because we thought, oh, we'll do it in Tower Bridge. Like, I think Lance was like, I'll do it in Tower Bridge. Bearing in mind, I'm very observant. I saw that he had a ring box in his pocket this whole time. But, <laughs> so, but so we got to Tower Bridge. And of course, it was the blood moon. So then all of a sudden, there were tons of photographers there taking photos of the moon between, like, in the middle of Tower Bridge. So we thought, okay, he thought, okay, that's probably not the place. So he got home and in the spare bedroom, I literally just got down on one knee and proposed. And when I was on my knee, he was like, wait there. And I was like, <laughs> yes or no? Wait, like, what do you mean wait there? And he went into the bathroom, got his ring that he was going to give to me. So it was, it was like, kind of like we proposed to each other, but obviously in my competitive way, <laughs> I proposed first. <laughs> like history knows that I've proposed first. And then did you know immediately you were going to have children? Well, you did because you knew what the name of the child was already. Uh, we both have like always wanted kids. And I think um, now being a parent is just, it's changed my perspective on absolutely everything. Changed my way. I think it's opened like a whole new emotional layer to me. I don't know. It's just been the most amazing last couple of years with Robbie. And how did you find the surrogate mother? Yeah, our, our surrogate is an app. She is, well, I mean, we talk to her all the time still. We're in constant communication with her. She's, it's. And has she seen Robbie? Does she? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, of, of course. Like we, like FaceTime and we, whenever we're in, in the States, we always hang out. It's, it's like becoming a, like a, a family. Like she becomes, it's, it's really hard to explain, um, but the way that we interact with her and the way that we are with her, it's like she's become one of our best friends. And there's something really special about that connection. It's something that um, Lance and I are very, um, we want to be completely open and honest and transparent. And obviously when Robbie starts asking questions of like, how did I come into the world, you know, um, we want to just, we want Robbie to know her. We want Robbie to understand everything and be, you know, completely honest. And do you know which the father is or did you decide not to know? So we we decided not to know, um, but it's also one of those things that we're both the parents. Did you have, when you were going to antenatal classes and things, did you have any homophobia? Did people react differently to you, think, as two fathers? To be honest, initially, like, I think people before they saw us as a family, they might have thought certain things, but when they actually see how much we like love and care for Robbie, um, it's, I think it, it changes people's mind because they think, oh, they just want to be a family. And that, of course, that's all that we've ever wanted to be. There are any parts of life where you feel there is still prejudice. So for example, when you're competing in the Commonwealth Games, that must be really tough because there are some Commonwealth countries where you're actually not allowed to be gay. Yeah. Um, so are there things that still um, that are still really hard? Yeah, I mean, there's, of course, I think, uh, again, it, it depends. you can go to places in the UK where you can experience homophobia. I think people, you know, living in London, people may not actually ever experience it or think about it. But there's lots of places within the UK that people are, you know, um, attacked and people are, and especially like even in America, uh, where you think again, that's going to be a place where there's no homophobia. Of course, there's tons of it there. And it's about, it's, it's a, it's a difficult one um, because obviously there are lots of countries where it is still illegal. Um, I mean, I haven't 
there are countries that I go to compete where it is very much frowned upon, illegal. Um, but I think the most powerful thing that an out athlete can do is to go there, compete and do the best that you can. Mm. And do you go with Lance and then do you make sure that you make it clear that you are a couple? Well, under the, the British policies, we're not allowed to travel together, stay together. Um, so it's like as part of competitions and things like that, we have to stay separate uh, completely anyway. So he does come to some competitions to watch, but he'll stay elsewhere with Robin. Okay. And do you think we've become too obsessed by gender and by sexuality and actually that everyone can be more fluid? Because yeah. you are a younger generation than many of the sports people now. And that in a way, is, you know, you're our ambassador for UK sport and the National Lottery. You can be a role model, can't you? So, Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. It's, it, I think it's, that's a, it's a really challenging one with, um, with, with all of that because gender is such a you know, hard-rooted thing in the, the way of life and culture. And, you know, for thousands of years, there's certain things that we're told that men should only do and that women should only do. And actually, you know, why? It's just, mm. it's like a construct made by human beings that they think that that was the right thing to do. And actually, you know, why, why can't, you know, women do, for example, how someone might dress and how someone like their sexual orientation, whatever it is, like if I don't, what I don't understand is when people are so against something that isn't hurting them and it isn't affecting their life. So, but have such strong opinions about making sure that they suffer. I think that's the thing that I, that I struggle to, to get my head around. When you think about the Olympics next year, do you feel daunted by it or do you feel a lot of pressure or do you now desperately want to win a gold or have you sort of, almost mellowed yeah I think uh, I've almost see this next year as a bonus year it's like you know what I thought I was going to be competing this year I'm not I'm waiting another year so next year I'm going to do uh, my absolute best like I said at the beginning to be on that platform the best physically prepared mentally prepared with no regrets doing everything that I possibly could have to be in the best shape, to do the best that I can. Is it very different being a father? Does that reduce the pressure then now? I think that does dramatically reduce the pressure because I know that if I do well or if I do badly, my son is going to be there and is going to give me a hug. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Tom Daly. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.